28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. No, it's not the average recording time of one of our uh, top 10 shows. It's how long <laughs> until the world will end, or will it? <laughs> Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Silver Screen Podcast's younger, sinister, malformed brother. The one they keep locked in the basement, away from the normals. <laughs> That's right, it's time for another cult classic. And if you haven't guessed from the tagline at the start... Today we'll be looking at Richard Kelly's 2001 movie, Donnie Darko. Andy Kay, and with me today is my ever-present guy in a bunny suit, which in fairness is one of his least strange kinks. That's Mike Wilson. How are you doing, Mike? <laughs> oh, my word. You can go suck a fuck. <laughs> that was my response to that. <laughs> so, yeah, we're already starting as <laughs> we mean to go on with the cursing, I guess, but... Yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm uh, I'm I've actually really enjoyed watching and uh, diving deep into Donnie Darko, which wasn't my choice. But um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to talking about it. It's a film we could spend plenty of hours discussing, I'm sure. But we'll see how we get on. <laughs> nice one. Well, also joining us today, that's right, folks. After recently appearing in the Turner episode, he's back to talk more time travel. Anyone who thinks he's a Doctor Who fan or something, it's Will Templer. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me again. You're more than welcome, fella. And last but certainly not least, you uh, heard him in the channel's recent top 10 Bond movie selection. And I've got to thank him for being the only other member of the team who had nice things to say about Moonraker. It's Jamie. How are you doing, fella? I'm doing good. I just can't wait to talk about one of my personal favourite movies. Oh, fantastic. Now, before we go any further, uh, Will and Jamie, I'm going to put you on the spot. As despite being no stranger to the Silver Screen podcast, it's the first time you've been in a cult episode. Uh, regular listeners will know that Mike gave his top pick on our recent Evil Dead show. But for the two of you today, I have to ask, if you could only choose one, what would be your own personal all-time favourite cult movie? And I'm going to go to you first, Will. Okay, so I've recently watched it. Uh, I don't know if this will count, but it's the Harrison Ford Blade Runner. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I consider that. Yeah. I We're completely on like the uh, newer one, but the, you can be the classics. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. What about you, Jamie? We'll have to cover that one day, by the way, Blade Runner. Sorry. Oh, to I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Jamie. <laughs> well, my answer is quite boring, as my favorite cult movie is uh, a certain movie called Donnie Darko. <laughs> I knew you were going to oh. say that. Well, <laughs> this should be a good episode, then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry for the boring answer. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's, it's, I think it's held up better than, than my own. And, uh, well, we'll get to Mike's in a few episodes, I think. Isn't that right, Mike? <laughs> DK, I love you, but we only have 14 hours to save the earth. Oh, Wilson, <laughs> alive. <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> yeah. I'm still alive at that point <laughs> yeah. now on to today's movie uh, now development on Donnie Darko began in 97 when Richard Kelly director of the movie graduated from film school with an idea he had regarding a jet engine falling into a house with no one knowing its origin and built the story around it Kelly was so protective of the project that he insisted on directing the movie himself but being relatively inexperienced, he struggled to secure backing until Drew Barrymore's Flower Films agreed to produce. Set in October 1988, the film follows the titular Donnie, 
an emotionally troubled teenager who begins to have visions after a bizarre accident in which he sees a strange figure in a bunny costume who tells him that the world will end in just over 28 days. Now, the movie premiered on January 19th, 2001 at the Sundance Film Festival, followed by a limited theatrical release in October of that year. Due to scenes featuring the, uh, the crashing of a plane so soon after September 11th attacks, advertising on the movie was extremely limited, which led to a severely depleted box office during the initial run. Despite this, the movie did receive critical acclaim, receiving positive reviews and was listed as the, at the number two spot of Empire's 50 greatest independent films of all time. Because of such attention, the film was reissued and went on to gross $7.5 million worldwide, with a further $10 million in home video sales in the US alone. Since then, it's received a director's cut reissue, which was released in 2004, as well as a stage production and the sure sign of a cult hit, a lackluster sequel that nobody asked for. I will watch that one day. Yeah, I'd, maybe. I'm not sure. And for those that haven't seen it, and if you haven't, what the hell are you doing here? The original is currently available on physical media and DVD, Blu-ray and 4K format from Arrow Films. Though I understand the Blu-ray 4K release is now going for quite the price. It's also available on streaming services. Now, as usual, we'll take a deep dive into the movie in just a moment, but as you lucky people have come to know and love over the months, before we do, we're going to take a little peek behind the curtain and enthrall you with wisdom slash bore you with trivia as we once again go behind the scenes. So, Mike, if you would uh, kindly hit me with your rhythm stick. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, yeah, so just uh, a fair bit of information that I thought was interesting. I tried not to put too much in here, but I was intrigued by here learning that both writing and filming the film took 28 days, which is yeah. really the same length of time portrayed in the movie. Um, Kelly wrote the movie in October of 1998, and that being the time of year is what influenced him to set the movie around Halloween. Uh, he claims that he set out to write something, quote, ambitious, personal and nostalgic about the 1980s, which pushed the envelope by combining science fiction with a coming of age tale. Uh, the New York Times honed in on the 80s coming of age story aspect and observed the influence of John Hughes, noting the ineffectual adults and the fact that Donnie's, quote, suffering is a way to make him more sensitive, unquote. Kelly summarized that the script was to be, in his words, an amusing and poignant recollection of suburban America in the Reagan era. Uh, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, Kelly had recalled a new story that he'd read as a child, which he's later called an urban legend, about a large piece of ice falling from the wing of a plane and crashing through a boy's bedroom. He was not there at the time and thus escaped death. Kelly used this to develop an initial idea of a jet engine falling onto a house where no one could determine its origin, and he built the rest of the script from there. At one point, Kelly did consider replacing the jet engine with a piece of ice like he'd read. Uh, either way, he was adamant he was going to set the film in 1988, thinking it would be fresh to explore the era and depict a society that he'd not seen in a film before. Later, he did admit that he felt pressured to make the setting more contemporary, but he couldn't figure out how to make the story work in that setting and retained the original period. Uh, he says he got ideas for Donnie's experience of paranoid schizophrenia from researching the topic online and says he considered that such a broad disorder that is difficult to define was a great way to ground a supernatural story in a scientific sense. Uh, there are some autobiographical links with Kelly in the film. He said there is, quote, plenty of me in Donnie's character. Uh, Kelly grew up in Midlothian, Virginia, also a suburban town where a local woman named Grandma Death would stand by the road and constantly open and close her mailbox. Kelly also incorporated the moment he also ran over, he almost ran over, sorry, a homeless person while driving, arguments with his school teachers over the curriculum and his personal experiences with sleepwalking into the narrative. 
<clears throat> now Kelly had Frank as a rabbit from the beginning, but he was unsure whether the character originated from a dream or his longtime interest in the animal novel Watership Down by Richard Adams. The novel was to be taught in Karen's English class after the school had censored Graham Greene, but it was a subplot that was abandoned in the theatrical version, yet included in the director's cut. And I was just telling DK um, off air before recording that I do think it's one of the scenes that should probably have been included because I think it's quite important. But uh, as I say, it's only there if you watch the director's cut. Uh, Kelly had meetings with various Hollywood big shots, but in particular, he had an influential meeting with Francis Ford Coppola, who drew his attention to one of Karen's lines after she is fired. Uh, the line, the kids have to figure it all out these days because the parents, they don't have a clue. And Kelly recalled he slid the binder down the big table and very dramatically said, that's what your whole movie's about right there. Uh, now, Vince Vaughn was offered the role of Donnie, but he turned it down as he felt he was too old for the part. Mark Wahlberg was also approached, but he insisted that he could, should play Donnie with a lisp. So we all dodged that bullet. The, oh. <laughs> uh, the film progressed in the year 2000 when actor Jason Swatchman had read the script and agreed to play Donnie. Kelly said that moment legitimized him as a director, which led to Barrymore accepting the part as Karen. And as uh, DK mentioned, her production company Flower Films uh, with Nancy Javonen agreed to finance the movie uh, to the sum of $4.5 million, which Kelly has later said was the bare minimum he would have needed to make the film. Uh, eventually, um, Jason Swartzman was forced to drop out due to scheduling conflicts and Jake Gyllenhaal was cast. Uh, he was given a lot of room to incorporate his own ideas, apparently, including making his voice sound like, and I quote, a child talking to its blanket when he talks to Frank as he is a source of comfort for Donnie. Gyllenhaal also had the idea to have his real-life sister Maggie star as Elizabeth Darko, and uh, Jolene Purdy's audition for Chirita was the first of her career. Uh, she has gone on to much bigger things now. If anybody's curious, you can IMDb that name. Uh, Richard Kelly credits Javonen, that's uh, Drew Barrymore's partner, for being instrumental for getting Noah Wiley and Patrick Swayze on board. Uh, <clears throat> nearly there, just a couple more facts. Uh, Kelly recalled several people showing him drawings of what they thought Frank should look like, describing them like an Easter bunny. He wanted Frank to be disturbing and animalistic. He insisted that Frank's face had to disturb people and create an intense response within the audience. The costume was first presented to the cast and crew at Loyola High School, where filming for the high school was uh, taking place, shortly after filming began. Although the actor Duval wore the suit for almost every scene, a director stepped in for the initial shoot, uh, and Kelly recalled, everyone just got quiet, like this is really intense. So I knew it was working, and I felt the sense of relief. Uh, and finally, in 2021, Kelly announced that work on an actual full sequel is in progress, uh, something he had abandoned until he spoke with James Cameron, who apparently has convinced him to make it because it was crazy and has all kinds of broad ideas. And we shall see if it transpires, but in either case, it will presumably be not S. Darko, shall we say. So at least <laughs> it has that going for it. And uh, yeah, that'll, uh, that'll, I completely forgot to play any music over that, but either way, that'll take us out of the behind the scenes section. I've and got one more will, behind the scenes. I don't think you mentioned. Uh, um, one person who helped get the, the movie out there in terms of, um, you know, like, you know, after its initial like failure in the box of one, one, one certain director helped to get the movie more out there as he saw potential in it. And that director was Christopher Nolan. With, uh, with regards to film, I remember we rented it from a, uh, a local blockbuster, as your parents' kids, a, uh, a few <laughs> months after it was released. We'd not heard anything about it, and really I was just intrigued by the cover imagery and, well, you know, rest is history. What about you guys? What was your first experience with this one? 
I am probably the oldest uh, other than DK, no offense here. So I was actually in my first year of university when the movie came out, uh, studying English and film studies. So the film was kind of, um, yeah, it, it was sort of the whispered about and people were handing out little mini posters and flyers. And I was saying to DK, I went to go and see it at the Tyneside Cinema, which is the local cinema that shows like indie movies and cult films and foreign movies, which uh, probably wouldn't necessarily make it to the big multiplexes. Uh, so I did go and see it at the cinema and didn't really think much about it, except that I kind of thought I had a, enjoyed the experience. So I did buy it when it came out on DVD as well. And as again, I was telling DK, the current uh, person that has that DVD is my friend Stephen Brown, who you'll have heard on a couple of the podcast episodes on both channels. Uh, I lent him the DVD probably about 20 years ago and just have never gotten it back. <laughs> so... So, yeah, I've, I've now been watching the Arrow Blu-ray, which I bought when uh, DK suggested we cover this movie, since I'm never going to get the DVD back anyway. So that's my experience with Donnie Duck. <laughs> <laughs> right, so my experience a bit is I saw it, um, oh, was it two years ago? 20, yeah, 2021, that's two years ago. And um, basically, I, I, I usually watch films with, with my family, and the reason I do that is because my family can always, they always pick random films which i've never heard of before for me to watch and one of them one day they suggested watching donnie darko um you know i hadn't heard of it before so you know we just put it on i didn't really know much about it or i, I looked it up and just like damn this looks creepy but whatever we'll watch it and i loved it and you know a few um months later i got the um i got the blu-ray just because i i, I usually get yeah, i don't get that much physical media but if if it's a favorite movie of mine i'll i'll get the like a dvd or blu-ray of it uh i do not have that interest in the story i literally just watched it on amazon prime yesterday but in, in fairness i did thoroughly enjoy it so it's not going to be like a dampener today oh well that's all right do you think it's do you guys think it's held up over the last 20 plus years yeah go on, say yeah. So. <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's kind of it's a weird one for me because again I'm, I'm sure i was mentioning this to you at some point but um I know I'd seen it before, but I haven't seen it in at least 20 years since the DVD was unceremoniously stolen from me. So I remembered watching it, and I remembered as I was watching it again this time, there were lines and moments where I was like, I vividly remember that. Um, and we had things like I remember the promotional campaign for it was revolving around the line in the cinema where Frank says, uh, pay close attention to the movie screen. I want to show you something. That was like the opening line of all the trailers and stuff that we got that was in you know, burned into my brain. Uh, and then obviously the funnier lines and stuff that have become iconic. But and, and I knew the broad strokes of the plot. Like I knew the whole thing about, you know, spoiler alert, the jet engine and Donnie ultimately dying and the time travel plot and stuff. But it was one of those things because it had been so long that it was almost like watching it for the first time again because so much of it was just like I I have no recollection of these particular scenes and it was it was a joy to watch again and kind of feel a bit uh, gutted that i hadn't done it sooner but now i'm glad to have uh, dived back into it nice one see see i'm i'm, I'm contributing to your education <laughs> to me it's quite strange to see such a young looking jake and maggie gyllenhaal because mm. <laughs> you know my introduction to jake gyllenhaal as an actor was um uh, you yeah, know, because because I'm a young one, it was um, Spider-Man: Far From Home. Yeah, Spider-Man: Far From Home. <laughs> yeah. it, actually, it was Spider-Man: Far From Home, and like I don't remember, don't remember what it was. It's probably like perfume or something, but it was like an, an advert on TV where it was like John Hall on a boat in the middle of the Arctic or something. I don't remember. I don't remember what it was advertising, but I remember seeing that. You've got to watch Prisoners. I will watch more. Um, uh, Jake John Hall. I, I do remember you um, recommending Prisoners. 
The guilty, yeah, he's a blame actor. This is probably one of his best performances as well, without a doubt. Yeah, definitely, 100%. Yeah. I mean, seeing as we're on it, we might as well just go straight into the actor. You know, standout performances, have you got any? I want to start with you, Jamie. Uh, well, Jake Gyllenhaal, obviously, um, you know, um, delivering one of his one of his best roles um, from just just anything really, because he he just has. I know how to describe it. He's he's got the innocence. I feel like you know, even though he's not like an innocent character, you he, he's sympathetic. You know, you do feel bad for him because of the um, you know his condition and how he feels kind of ostracized by everyone else. So I yeah, I think he's got the um, the layers to him that his character needs. Uh, just trying to. Just going to quickly look up some of the other actors. I remember the character names, but not always the the actors. So I've got one. Uh, is the therapist? I think her name's Catherine Ross. Yeah, she was blaming like it's such a delicate topic, mental health. So I think she got well the kind of empathy uh, spawn. So her and Jake, you know, were probably my standout performances because Jake is like you don't even have to ask why he's just blaming. How old was he in this film? He's got to be like twenties, right? 23, uh, I think it was. 23. For I him think it to was... lead a film like this is blind, yeah. Oh, no, I think he was nine. I think he might have been 19. I think it were Maggie that were he 23. Was born, he was born in 1980, so he was around mm. um, 20 to 21. Yeah, but the fun fact at the start, whatever you call it, the behind-the-scenes stuff, I didn't actually know that was um, like a actor's choice for the voice. Um, but, yeah, that was really effective. And I was, yeah, that's pretty impressive. I'd say another actor which stood out to me was Jenna Malone as Gretchen. Um, I, again, it's just the um, you you have you feel the sympathy because she's got the the layers to her with the performance. Um, you know, like you know, near the end when she um, thinks that um, you know her mother's been been taken by um, by her um, crazy crazy father. You know, she you do feel yeah. sorry for her because she does have she does have the emotional range to her, but at the same time, her and Jake Journal have great chemistry, and you do really buy the connection between the two. Definitely. I also think uh, Noah Wilde and Drew Barrymore are really good in this, if, if a little understated. They don't try and steal the limelight. Yeah, but, I mean, it's not their story, so I'm, I'm glad they don't um, try to steal the limelight. Yeah. I will interject here and say that I actually thought Drew Barrymore was really good in a somewhat limited role. But again, I think she's one of the people that benefits if you watch the director's cut, because she has a couple of really important scenes that they add that are actually really well acted as well. But yeah, I mean, in particular, as I was watching even the theatrical cut, I think her scene where she gets fired and she's basically railing about, well, losing them, these kids, to apathy and everything. I think I thought that was a really good scene. And like mm. Francis Ford Coppola, apparently, I do think it's pretty key to the movie. I think, oh, honestly, I, I love everyone. It's just it's hard to pick standouts. I think everyone did a great job. Yeah, there's nobody that lets it down. I know that Mike's got a personal affection for Beth Grant. Oh, I was just going to say... <laughs> Yep, I was already talking to you about it, but yes, character actress Beth Grant, who is stalking me because she's also in Speed, which I watched for the first time ever last week, and uh, I heard her on a podcast. She was in an episode of The Office, so she was on a podcast for that I was listening to, and uh, what else? Oh yeah, and then I discovered she's actually the mother of a popular Star Trek actress, <laughs> which blew my mind a little bit, so... To be fair, though, I think for the role that she has, she is really outstanding because she has to be unlikable. Um, if you're not sure who she is, by the way, she's Kitty, the gym teacher who kind of supports the self-help guru the, who turns out to be... The second a... most horrible character in the movie. Yeah, but it's not easy to play those kind of roles, and yet she acts no. it 
so well. And even within that, like there's moments that I was telling DK, I like a lot of the dark humor in the movie, but selling oh. the line, sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion and making it one of the funniest lines in the movie. It's just like, come on, that can't be easy. <laughs> The, uh, I always forget how funny this movie is. And then every rewatch, I'm laughing out loud at multiple points. Yeah, it's dark humor, but it's definitely there. I was saying to DK, there's also the bit where they're going to kiss, and then Gretchen's like, no, I want it to be. And he kind of correct. He finishes a sentence with, oh, somewhere beautiful and reminding you what life is. And then she's like, yeah, plus there's also a fat guy over there staring at us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I think like most people, the standout comedic moment for me is the bit where they're discussing the Smurfs law. It just breaks me <laughs> yeah, every time. Oh, I don't know, man. I still get quite a chuckle out of what are feces, baby mice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or, or alternatively, do you even know who Graham Greene is? I think we've all seen Bonanza. <laughs> I, I always like the bit where, um, uh, but, uh, what was his name? Uh, but, uh, Eddie, uh, where um, they're in the, the the office, and you know, um, you know, where they find out that Donnie, um, Donnie told, um, Donnie told Kitty to shove the chart up up her anus, and then um, yeah. Eddie just because he couldn't help it. Yeah, <laughs> apparently Kelly had to leave the set when they were filming that because he couldn't stop laughing. I don't blame him. <laughs> Again, no best ground with the comedy chops of like you're out of nowhere. It's this dead serious scene, and she's like, "He told me to forcibly insert the task card up my anus." He <laughs> just can't not laugh at that one. Oh. <laughs> oh. I do love a bit of dark comedy, and this this movie delivers. I think that's why oh, I yeah. like this movie so much. It's it's like yeah, it's got the serious moments, but it's entertaining. It's an entertaining watch. Mm. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah. In a more literal uh, sense, I found uh, the fact that only two people went to a film screening on Halloween was like completely unrealistic. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was the like... Evil Dead, to be fair, which is, I think it was which, like... Which, yeah, and it was yeah. paired with Last Temptation of Christ. Yes, quite deliberately yeah. homing in on that, just as uh, as um, Donnie is tempted by Frank to go and burn down the house. Yes, I noticed the symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, yeah, like you telling me only two people went to a screening of Evil Dead. Um, well, it would have Halloween. been an, it would have been like a super X rated. So, like, who else would have done? Talking about cutting, and what did uh, everybody think to Patrick Swayze in there? Oh yeah, I think he uh, great, great role. And I, um, he did a great performance. And you know, Jim Cunningham, I think, was an interesting character. You know, the guy everyone's, well, the guy, well, most people specifically, Kitty, um, you know, romanticizes and fantasizes over, and it's like, oh, he's actually a horrible, horrible man. <laughs> I just think that's an yeah. interesting, interesting thing, and also it makes Kitty more unlikable. It's like you know the fact that yeah. oh yeah, of course she would she would say that it is like oh these allegations aren't true. It's like yeah, of course that's so that is absolutely in character for her. And it's also like conservative era America as well, so naturally that's the kind of thing. Like she's you know banned books and whatever because they're teaching pornography apparently in the school. Yet she supports this pedophile because all conservatives are hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, I, I also, I also kind of um, uh, kind of ironic that you know she was she was um, supporting a pedalo, and um, when she was saying that to um, to to Roche, um, she had on a shirt like, "Oh, is it like I love God or something?" God is awesome. <laughs> God is awesome. Yeah, I want to I want to just echo exactly what Jamie's already said though that Jenna Malone was fantastic in the movie and the relationship was truly believable, like genuinely that kind of first love. You know, you're just coming of age type thing. I was, I was totally invested in. What about uh, Mary McConnell, Holmes Osborne as uh, Darko's parents? How did they? Uh, how were they for everybody? Oh, I, I loved them. I, I thought they were. I thought they were good. As I said, um, 
Eddie cracks me up at many points. He's he's an absolute <laughs> legend. But but Rose, she's like, I like how just you know, motherly she is. I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but she is motherly. Like she's you know obviously um you know her and Donnie you know, they they have like you know a stable relationship, but it's not like perfect or anything. They do butt heads occasionally, but it's not like I wouldn't call it toxic. Like she's she cares for Donnie. She like um in spite of everything, she does care for Donnie. I just think that's nice to see. You know. Um, for someone with, um, you know, um, you know, mental health problems, like having parents who do care for them, I just think it makes it makes the viewing experience pleasant that you can, you know, he's got people who do, who do care for him. Like even if there are some people at school who don't like him, he, you know, he's got an, he's got a nice family. Yeah, that, that scene where he says, "What's it like to, you know, have a mental case as a son?" and she says, "I think that's wonderful." Yeah, yeah, I love that scene. I was going to say the same thing. And uh, Jim, uh, Jamie, you're saying you hadn't seen the director's cut, haven't you? No. Every time I try, I um, think about doing it. I decide maybe later. It's just well, one. I know it's you know a lot longer, so I you know I don't always well, have the time. Two, so I kind of just I love the the film as is, and I've heard like um, you know, mixed things about the director's cut. Like some people say it's better. Yeah. Some people say it's it's um. A bit too it's waffly not, and ex- it's not um, better i'll give you that but like i said there's some really cool i mean alternatively as i was saying to dk maybe just watch the deleted scenes that are on the theatrical cut blu-ray because there are <laughs> scenes that are put back in the director's cut that i really love that i'm glad are there and yet there's also kind of a lot of handholdy you know this is the philosophy of time travel that we're explaining yeah i kind of i kind of like not not knowing um yeah. everything about like it's the journey more than the destination for this film for me at least like i i like I like the mystery. I like figuring everything out for myself. So I will watch the director's yeah. cut one day, probably was, October um, time to, um, yeah. I was saying to DK, it's kind of weird because I don't mind the kind of stuff like that existing, but I would have preferred that Kelly had just done a copy of the philosophy of time travel as a book separately, keep it yeah. out of the film. And then if you want to go and look that up and know all about it, you can just buy the book if you want to. And if you don't, yeah, then the film's not time. affected, you know? I mean, <laughs> but, um, Kelly's on record himself as saying he doesn't really consider it a director's cut. It was the uh, publisher's New Market Films idea. He mm. considers the theatrical version just fine. Although yeah. he edited it, he says, you know, he, he uh, to, to him, the new version's just a kind of special edition of sorts. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I would say the director's cut, having now watched it, isn't bad, but it's certainly not as good as the theatrical cut because because of the, like everybody's already said, it's because it takes away some of the kind of mystery and some of the that thing. But then again, like I said, a lot of the scenes that are in it are, are worth watching it for, um, including little mm. touches like directing moments and, and flashes that I won't go into. But the reason that I brought it up specifically uh, to latch onto your conversation, DK, was because... Uh, there's a really cool moment that's not in the theatrical cup between Donnie and his dad, which is a similar kind of counterpoint to the moment with him and his mum, where his dad's basically like Donnie's apologizing, saying, "Oh, you must be sick. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm crazy and I'm sick of this." And his dad's like, "You're not crazy. You're just more intelligent than most people in the world." And you know, they're all just subscribing to this same old bullshit narrative that everybody feeds them, and you scare them because you won't do that. And to people like that, I just say, "What do we say? Fuck you." And I was like, that's a really sweet, nice moment between him and his dad that I kind of wish was in the film. But yeah, it's there if you want to watch it on the deleted scenes or the director's cut anyway. Where yeah. else you find it? Is it literally just Blu-ray? Yeah, on the theatrical yeah. cut Blu-ray, it's under deleted scenes. And uh, otherwise, it's a second disc on the one that me and Jamie have got for the director's yeah. cut. Okay. Um, to answer your question, by the way, well, it's 20 minutes longer. It's not hugely that much. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I was expecting like an hour longer, by the way. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I mean, it's like 
things that the director's cut is like I I think the film like has a pretty tight pace overall. Like you're uh, mm. quite breezy, and it's like I feel like adding on to it would sort of drag it out a little bit. Um, so I'm kind of glad they, they you know it kind of does but at the same time like i said i think the, the the thing that affects it the worst is the fact that it just stops and intersperses these pages on screen from the time travel book and it's just like it stops the movie dead whenever that happens because you feel like you've got to stop and read it and it's like why are you explaining what's <laughs> i'd rather you just Maybe didn't you know movie. i'm not gonna read if i want yeah. to read, read the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah speaking mm. of that uh does anybody have any comments on the writing of the movie itself? Very, very sharp overall. I think, like, not just with the like the dialogue and stuff, where it's you're very, very um, you're quick and um, you're with the characters bouncing off each other and you know some zinger of lines. I just think um, it is just a compelling um, narrative overall, and the stuff included uh, you know in in the script about the the philosophy of time travel is just intriguing, and I, I feel like also the the way, like, you know, s some scenes are have, like, limited dialogue, but it, it's effective, like, specifically the scenes with Frank, it's kind of, you know, like, in the first scenes with Frank, he doesn't really say very much, but just the, the dialogue is effective from what he does say. He doesn't need to drag it out. He just says, 28 days, 6 hours, um, 42 minutes, 12 seconds, that's when the world is end. That, that's all he needs to say. Yeah. I yeah. can do whatever I want, and so can you. It's a pretty cool moment as well. <laughs> Similarly, a rare yeah. comparison I found like the beats of that was very similar to Goodwill Hunting because it's a very similar um, film in terms of like um, mental illness and whatever. And I think the pace of um, this film was pretty similar to that one. It was it was really quick, and uh, there was never really a point where you kind of took your eyes off the performances because they were so. Well, this is a rhyme section, but it was like writing and the acting complemented each other. So mm. yeah. Mm. The pace was fantastic. I was there. <clears throat> Definitely, yeah. If, if we're making comparisons, by the way, DK, you'll appreciate this. As I was watching it this time around with kind of a more refined palette, I was very aware that this reminded me a lot of um, Twin Peaks in moments from some yeah. of the weirdness and the kind of suburban feel and stuff. I'm talking, by the way, good Twin Peaks, not Twin Peaks The Return. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I can kind of I can entirely see why you would like it because it has that same sense of weirdness, uh, ambiguity at times, and yet like that kind of something sinister in suburgatory kind of feel, if that makes sense. And uh, yeah. and and yet it kind of finds beauty in some some of the darker moments, I think, as well, which Lynch is is good at doing. So yeah, I, I figured that was probably why you were drawn to the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, when you look at it on the surface level, also it is quite a sad indictment of the uh, the U.S. education system, where uh, none, you know, Noah Wilde Monitoff can't continue that conversation. Uh, when he when he never he's, understood he's, that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, talking about God, because well, you you're not allowed to to get into to that kind of thing because yeah, I think of the, I think such religious stuff. Yeah. I mean, the teachers in the movie, for the most part, they they feel helpless. They can see what's what's happening, but they can't prevent it. For the most part, parents don't care, and the teachers that do, their attempts to uh, to educate children are washed away in like this deluge of unimportant and flashy, easy fixes like Jim Cunningham or the talent contest, which mm. seem more inclined to make the parents feel good about themselves than actually giving a shit about the kids. 
I would, mm. I would push back against that a little. I don't think it portrays the parents as uncaring at all. I think they really, in particular, I'm thinking of the Darko parents are actually, they seem like they are struggling with this as well and they want to help and just find their own way to do it, you know? And uh, they take their licks. I mean, getting getting called on, a bitch yeah, and stuff. You know? <laughs> you know, you get the other one that's that's fallen for Jim Cunningham's bullshit about giving in to well, fear. Yeah, but that's not really a main character as such. It's more like emphasizing what Donnie says, which is, you know, I think you're the flippin' antichrist, basically, you know. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's putting it mildly 007. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, I, I, that's got nothing to do with some of the broader themes, but I can kind of sense that it's just Richard Kelly having a go at self-help gurus in general. And, like, you know, life is more complex than this. I love that scene where... She's trying to make Donnie do the experiment, and he's like, how about, you know, the entire spectrum of fucking human emotions? You can't oh, put it all in one of two I things, you know? explain how many times I've wanted to do what Donnie did in that scene, but I just, <laughs> I'm too much of a wuss because I don't want to get in trouble and whatnot. I'm, I'm a goody two-shoes, but I, I've wanted to do that so many times because some of the stuff yeah. you have to do in, like, some of the stuff you're taught in school in, like, PSHE is just stupid. Yeah. But I think that it, it hits a lot of those moments in terms of the writing that are key to like coming of age and growing up and realizing things. And that's one of the key moments is like there's a whole spectrum of emotions and experiences that people go through. And, you know, in a way, it kind of the film asks you to, to speculate that death is part of that. You know what I mean? It's something we all have to come to terms with. And it, it's up to us, you know, to not necessarily see it as a terrible thing and. Yeah, I mean, it, that's that's what I took from it anyway. It was like, it comes back to him discussing in the start of the class, like destruction is a form of creation because in destruction you can change things. And I'm like, that's kind of literally what he's doing. Like, he's destroying himself to save somebody else's life. And yeah, it's that's, it's a weird act of love. And <clears throat> again, that coupling that with the lines in the therapist's office when she says, like, if the world... You know, if the sky opens up and there's nothing else, all that matters would be what you remember, what you've done and what kind of a person you were. And for me, that's why he like laughs kind of hysterically and he's happy and and loves it because it's like, well, I've, I've been a great person and I've done this selfless thing. And, and now death, I have no fear of it. You know, So, yeah, like anyway, his, not his to get action, deep. <laughs> his action of you know, getting getting killed you know, at the end. It's like how, how many people does it say? Well, you know, it, it saves um, Gretchen's life for a star because that she, um, she's not up at the the. Uh, Mama Death's house, Grandma Death's house. Yeah. Sorry, to get, yeah, um, yeah. hit by the um, hit by the car. Basically, the only really problem with uh, Donnie Darko dying is uh, Jim Jim Cunningham wasn't exposed. But at the same time, well, with the the Mad World sequence it showed him sort of like breaking down in tears. So maybe he would have confessed himself. Are, we know. Yeah. These are all things that are kind of explained very handholdy in the director's cut. But um, yeah, I mean, effectively, it, it, on the surface level, it seems like he saves Gretchen's life mainly and Frank's. But the kind of the, the time travel book postulates that he actually was saving the entire like main universe because we were in a weird different universe until he sent the jet engine back and got himself killed. And so he was like the crux that was like, again, it comes back to, oh, the name sounds like a superhero. How do you know I'm not? Because it's like he literally saved creation. Um, <laughs> but then it also says that, you know, the people that were in this tangent universe won't remember, but they will sort of vaguely remember it in dreams and they'll feel the, the sort of the weight. And that's what that last scene is about. Cause you've got yeah, Cunningham waking you know, Frank in particular, like haunted by the, the pictures of, of the bunny suit and touching his eye where he kind of feels oh, what I might have happened. And it's just, yeah. Oh. But uh, I mean, it goes through every character. I mean, you see Noah Wiley's uh, 
you know, teacher wake up, you see the therapist wake up in a fright, and uh, you see uh, Charita, I think that's the name, wake up, and it's like the implication is that nobody really exactly remembers, but they all feel a sense of something and maybe a sort of sadness and, a, you know, a weird pseudo-recognition of what's happened. And again, that's emphasised the most in... Uh, Gretchen and Rose seemingly recognizing each other when they wave at each other. Like, I know you're from somewhere, but I can't place it kind of thing. So, mm. yeah. Sorry, I've spoken too much. I didn't want to take over. So, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I lost Will again. Uh, sh sh should we talk about the endings? Because we've, we've kind of been on the subject of it. Yeah, go for it. Well, uh, but we were talking about performances earlier. Um, got, I've got to say, I've... Um, um, neglected to mention it but uh mary mcdonald at the very end you know a bit where she's um spoken that's i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest that's my favorite bit of acting from the whole movie just like you, you know she's not bringing out it's, it's quite simple you know she's just smoking but you could just see the pain in her eyes and i i know how to describe it it's just it's just so much to that one expression um and that one action of just smoking that it, it hits me it hits me i i i did Admittedly, on my first viewing um, of this movie, like two years ago, I did admittedly well up at that bit. Mm. Yeah, I think that they all do a really good job in that scene, considering it's like the family, the Darkos are kind of they don't speak, so it's a, a dialogueless. And yet, if you look at um, you know the, the actor who plays his dad, whose name I don't know, or even Maggie Gyllenhaal, Davy Chase, they are all selling to me the complete breakdown and the devastation. But the kind of key best performance part for me is Jenna Malone, like I said, with that moment of like, no, I didn't know him, but yet she manages to give you that flicker of recognition of like, hmm, there's something there, <laughs> you know, uh, which is pretty hard to pull off, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. mm. It's just a, a great scene. Like, you, yes, I still don't understand every single corner of it, but I mm. just don't care. Or, to be brutally honest, yeah. I just don't care anymore. It's, um, it's, it's like I said. It's about the journey, um, less than the um, actual, you know, main event. Like just seeing yeah. the progression of the mysteries and the twists and everything. And what? I, I, I enjoy um, picking it apart and determining my own readings of it um, in my own way. And just I, I like figuring out for myself. And yeah. you know, I may not understand every aspect of it, but I don't care. Yeah. yeah. So, I would say that it explains, to, it explains enough for me that I really, like, I can get on board with the stuff it does explain, like, the cool thing, the repeated thing about um, Frank's eye having been shot out, and that's, like, emphasised in the bunny costume, like, that's where the portal appears, and that's where the light comes from and stuff, and then at the end of the movie, it explains that for you, and I'm like, okay, cool, that's that's one thing explained that I can latch onto. And even the kind of time travel part, you understand enough to know like Donnie's sacrificing himself. He's traveling back in time. He's the one doing it and he's ultimately making this action. And beyond that, I don't need to understand the how, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. almost as yeah. less important than the emotional why he did it is like, well, how was he able to, it doesn't matter almost, you know? So <laughs> yeah, the, the emotion kind of, you know, is, is what, you know, carries, carries the ending for, for most people. I think it's like, yeah. you know, you may be wondering what, what does it mean, but you just don't really care when, when mad world starts, you just don't, you just don't care. No. Yeah. I mean, there's things that I like that as I was deep, like diving deeper into it, that it does actually sort of imply everything that happens has to lead him to that point. And then when you examine it in that way, a lot of it does make sense. And it's really cool because yeah. you're like, well, the way everything has to happen and has to pan out, then 
because I was like, well, so it seems like some events that occur are pointless. Like, why does he have to burn down the Peterfell guy's house? And then I'm like, well, because that's the only way that Kitty would then not be available, which would then mean they were traveling, which would mean they were on the jet engine that he then has to send back. So that's your point right there. And why would he have to flood the school? Because that's when he has the meet Gretchen. Because then yeah. he has to, that's as all the motivation for kind of going back and everything. They call it an insurance trap in the. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the every, everybody, you know, both the living and the dead are basically set up as a domino effect to make sure Donnie goes through with it. Yeah. Yeah. Manipulated every, living under manipulated dead, they call them. <laughs> yeah. Every, every action has a purpose and leads into the next point. And yeah, I'm, I'm I, yeah, like basically. Yeah, it all means something. Yeah, that's that's what Frank's actions are there for, just to help lead to the next event. You know, get you know, meet yeah. you know, meet some meets Gretchen, gets him gets him out of the house um on the on the final day and out of the way. Yeah, I also I do like that there is still even if you watch the very handholdy version, there are still some things that it doesn't even try to explain. Like it says that like Donnie becoming the living receiver that has to have this burden. And it says nobody knows how or why a living receiver gets picked. Maybe it's an act of God. Maybe it's supernatural forces. But for whatever reason, they'll have like weird, you know, superhuman powers during this tangent universe. And uh, nobody knows why, but they just do. Like, All right, cool. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> you just accept it and move on to the next bit because it's so, so such a beautifully shot film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can, can we talk about the direction? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's, I mean, that's what we're going to go on to next. I mean, have you got anything else to say about the writing, Mike? I mean, it's it's a very rich, deep movie, whichever way you look at it. Is. Yeah, there's a lot you can pick apart with this. Definitely. Oh, fully, yeah. And I mean, there's that's a lot of things you could describe meaning to. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to bring your own personal take to it. Personally, I kind of respond to the character of Donnie, I think, more than some people might, because I have, I'm somebody that's had like mental health issues and yeah. emotional problems. Again, not stabbing my ex-wife multiple times or anything, but uh, <laughs> but like I've been in that position with therapists and stuff where you're like, you, you feel like nobody quite gets it and they're like, tell them whatever you want and it'll all be fine and it'll, you know, it'll be, it's like, oh, fuck off, it's not that easy. You know, yeah. we are a whole uh, things and there's a lot to break down here, you know. And unlike Jamie, I've actually been in that situation in a classroom with the, with the, uh, the teacher. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can believe it. Yeah, it's I like believe, I, yeah, I was, people say, like, um, you know, Kitty is like over the top in how bitchy she is, but it's like, you tell me you haven't met anyone like her. I have, oh, I've met lots of people like her. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, 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 you know, I don't relate to Donnie like, um, exclusively, like, or, or like specifically, but I know people, like, not to the extreme, but I know people somewhat like, like Donnie, um. And you know, I do, I do understand and sympathise with his with his struggles, um, you know, to to quite quite a big extent. From even like from my external perspective, I do relate to, um, I do relate to to um, like large parts of this film quite a bit. I think um, if I if I may, I think a lot of us can relate to uh, to Donny because because his is the coming of age story, and we've all been that kind of mm -hmm. emotional teenager where we're wrestling with our emotions and our hormones and at the same time trying to understand the adult world that we're kind of yeah. stepping into and you know like i said the fact that this, there's a broad range of emotions falling in love for the first time accepting the idea of mortality and uh, you know your responsibility i guess in a huge way so well as again, they say we're all we're all the stars of our own story and everybody yeah. you know regardless of who you are you always you, we all feel like that loner that you know maybe there's something about us that's special kind of thing it's just with donnie that kind of is i mean it doesn't work yeah. out that great for him but 
Well, I mean, like I said, I, I would still say you could particularly, again, I, I might get grief for it, but I still think you can read the ending as, as a happy one. It isn't necessarily, you know, desperately sad for, for Donald. Oh, no, it's not, but it's, but... I, I, you know, I think it, it also plays out in the, you know, the lyrics of the Mad World song. Yeah, and I was just going to say, because I think that's the key, isn't it? Like, dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had is, is yeah. the whole point of the movie. And, you know, the I, oh, I won't oh, get too far into it, but... You know, I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. You know, um, Donnie's laughing. He finds it funny. But, um, you know, his family are, are sad because, you know, he's, he's dead and you know, he's close to them. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even the fact that the little kids, like when he's talking to Gretchen and they don't say anything about Donnie, it's like, I feel really bad for his family. And it's like, well, yeah, because that's the ones that have to live with it. But he's kind of, you know, his, his, his pain's over, I guess, <laughs> at this point. And uh, yeah, he's uh, he's moved on to whatever else. But I think he... Like I said, he has some pretty inspirational things that I don't want to mention because they're on my favourite line. But I, I think it's uh, yeah, it, it's perhaps telling as to what he thinks is going to happen and it's not necessarily, oh, there's oblivion and nothingness. You know? Yeah. Um, anyway. So, yeah, on to direction. Uh, over to you, Jamie. Is anything you want to point out? All right. Um, I'll just I'll start by talking about the scene, then talk about it overall. The head of a heel scene is phenomenal, just from a directing perspective. I, I love that scene so much. And it's like the one I always, it's the scene I always go to when I talk about the direction for this film. Like, you know, it should be a simple scene. It's just establishing the school and establishing some of the characters. But just the way it's done, like, you know, there's a load of, um, you know, really long one shot um, tracking shots through like the corridor, for instance. But it lays out so much information in like all visually in one go like you know how it should you know it's like oh this is the bully character oh um this this woman likes jim cunningham oh um the um uh, samantha's um you know dancing she must be part of a dance group you know stuff like that it just yeah it lays out so much information and you know not to mention it's got a banger song alongside it yeah yeah the, so, sound yeah, the soundtrack is is particularly good i mean we'll we'll get to that in a bit but yeah that is a fantastic opening opening shot it conveys so much information in one you know, tracking shot, long tracking shot. I, I, I do like that. I mean, some beautiful imagery there. When mm -hmm. Frank first wakes Donnie and you get a glimpse of, you know, that kind of fourth dimension with the water yeah. and the metal. And oh, then, yeah, and then later on, uh, I, I love how uh, Kelly inter intercuts some scenes with others, like where uh, Frank's speaking to Donnie uh, about time travel and it's cutting back and forth uh, to the PTA meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, later on, when it goes back to uh, Donnie hitting the knife against the barrier uh, with Frank's eye, and it's cutting back and forth with Donnie's parents at the uh, the therapists, and then they do it uh, later on with the uh, the sparkle motion scene, and at the same time, the burning down of Cunningham's house, and it's taking place in slot. I love that those scenes. Love them. I think it's like. It, 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 like it can build tension in like two ways like the pta meeting for instance you know the tension is being built as it's like oh everyone's getting more and more restless complaining about the book you know um you know i'm you're know, worried about what what's going to happen to to karen because you know she's the one who's just the book you know you're building it like oh, that scene on its own will build tension and then it's intercut with with donnie uh, meeting frank in the in the bathroom you know that's you know quite a, a tense and um you know, chilling scene so the, the cut between the two, it, like, it's able to build tension in an interesting way. And even something like the talent show, you know, watching any talent show is, you know, tense for me because, like, oh, don't mess up, don't mess up. And, you know, that alongside, you know, 
um donny but um getting ready to burn down the house you know obviously that's a tense scene because you know it's, it's dramatic and you know it's doing something serious and you, know, you don't want to get you don't want to get caught and all that it's 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 it's, it's well done i think yeah um, just to chime in here, if anybody is listening along, by the way, when once this is edited and up, uh, we have lost Will, unfortunately. <laughs> I've been trying to get in touch, and he says he's trying to get in, but it just keeps on uh, sticking on the entry screen for some reason. Um, so it's not letting him. He has posted a review, so I have got his <clears throat> conclusion when it comes to it, if he's not able to get back in. But, yeah, in the meantime, if you're wondering where he is, we're doing our best, but you are stuck with me, DK and Jamie, so hopefully that's enough if, uh, enough for you if you uh, if you are listening along. It's not like one of us is, isn't passionate about the film or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But, um, no, you've reminded me of another, sort of not to keep bragging on about the, the director's cut, the deleted scenes, but in terms of Karen's character, there's a really lovely moment when after um, the... Once they, you know, they've they've banned the Graham Greene book, and she has to start teaching Watership Down, where she's like, "Well, if uh, you know, alas, I haven't been elected Queen of the Universe, so I've got to follow the rules. But it pains me that you'll never get to experience this kind of beautiful piece of literature. However, if you're seen around school reading it, you will be suspended. But not to worry, because somebody has, you know." pre-ordered a, a dozen copies at the local bookshop down at the mall and prepaid for them. So I was like, I love that kind of rebellious sort of streak in, uh, in her, you know? So yeah, that was a nice moment. But yeah, it's like so many good bits of direction. Like the, the movie theater scene, for instance, you know, it's just, um, you know, the you know, simplicity with, you know, it's just um, Donnie, Gretchen and Frank there, but you know, Gretchen's asleep and you know, Donnie and Frank have to talk over it. Stuff like basically talk over her. Yeah, I just think that's an interesting visual. And then obviously with the what was it? Just the the thing coming through the screen when it's playing Evil Dead. Yeah, you know, that's a, a striking visual. And just you just in general, the the film I can describe is like it's just it's striking overall. Yeah, it's a, it's a striking, memorable, unique film. And I think the direction aids that massively because it is just yeah, it's very like the direction is very I guess for lack of better words, artsy, and but it works this, with this kind of film. Yeah, even in small scenes where he's, uh, you know, ex uh, explaining to the therapist, and in, it's, as the voiceover is going, he's showing him and Gretchen in slow-mo on the trampoline. Mm. Love yeah. the little, little touches. I don't think there's a wasted scene in this, and when you get to certain, you know, things like, I mean, we've already discussed it, but the uh, the remembrance scene where everyone's waking up to Mad mm -hmm. World. It's it's just beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. Yeah, yeah. massive. I think um, a couple of things. First of all, I think I've mentioned this in other reviews, but I love any movie which has um, exposition without like bogging it down in plot, and it's it's quite economical with it. So it does exposition via scenes that are important or that don't that, that exist not just for that. So like you get to learn all about. Donnie's kind of family life and mental problems because they're having an argument with their siblings over dinner. And it's like, that's that's awesome. That's just natural. And it, it doesn't stop and say, I'm Donnie. I have mental issues. I'm taking pills, but I'm stopped taking them and whatever. And yet all that information is provided to you there. And even yeah. like you said, the, the kind of introducing everybody in the school by basically just doing a montage you know, of uh, slowed down and accelerated scenes, which again, in a movie that's about time travel, there's an awful lot of like accelerated and slowed down time, which I think is pretty deliberate on the part of uh, of Richard Kelly. So mm. yeah, yeah, like yeah, it gets, stands out. It's like just yeah, so much information can just be told like visually, like the very opening, for instance, that opening lives rent free in my head of you know, Donnie on the hill. It's like, it can tell mm. you so much like you know, Donnie's on the hill. It's like, oh, 
He's in his pajamas. This this isn't natural. And you know, he stands up at the hill and he smiles to himself. So it, it gives the implication that, oh, this has happened before. So I guess Donnie's a frequent sleepwalker. And it's like, you know, that's, it's a simple, simple scene, you know, told through one facial expression. And you can just understand everything, or well, not everything you need to know about his character, but you can understand a, a key part of his character. And, you know, it's a very integral part of his character. This is what um, initially saves his life from the um, from the jet engine. Yeah. Yeah, but again, like even in that, it's it's enough without you know getting into it by a clunky exposition. It's like in that scene, you learn he sleepwalks, but it doesn't necessarily bother him because he kind of finds it amusing, and yet he goes back home and the family are aware because there's the where is Donny on the fridge, and his mum's like, well, where do you go at night? So you get a lot of information just from that. Again, it's very economical storytelling and, and direction, which I love. Hmm. It's just a tight film overall. Direction, writing, pacing. It's just, it's tight. It's a very tight film. Yeah. yeah. And he still manages to include the surest sign of something set in the 80s, which is basically a group of kids pedaling on bikes down a road. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very Stranger Things a uh, decade or two before we actually got it, wasn't it? But, uh, yeah. I will say, though, you mentioned it already, but I my probably my favourite single scene in the movie is that scene where... It's like the lockers and the school office on a, on a sea of water in, in the clouds because that is the closest I've ever seen anybody get to like what my dreams look like put on an actual image because that is so trippy and weird. And yet there's logic there. I mean, it's not like the most unusual thing. It's just water and, and environments, but it's... So but they cool. don't... What I love about it is they don't try and explain it. No, no, because it's a dream. I mean, that's the whole point yeah. of a dream and it's like, well, what's, what is it about, you know? But overall, it's like this is like I think we we can agree that this is a very weird, trippy film. But it's like that weird trippy films—they're not really my thing. I don't particularly you know yeah, click with a I lot agree. of them. And I'm not the biggest fan of them. I prefer simple, straight to the point films with like clear narrative. Yeah. But I, Dude, I, I just can't... criticized Twin Peaks: The Return. I'm clearly not a fan of uh, ambiguous <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> like, I don't mind ambiguousness, but just like so long as the main like narrative makes sense. Yeah. But I can't put my finger on why this movie's the the main exception because I, don't I think love it's this. It's as movie. trippy as people think. That's the thing because I I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. say it's that trippy of an experience. I think it's it's a beautiful experience and it's it's almost dreamlike in the way that good cinema can be but it's very baby's first david lynch in a sense you know like there's nothing super weird i think that's weird i I don't have a problem with ambiguity in film if it's done well which donnie darko does because it doesn't just rely on narrative it relies on your own experience and emotions to pull you through and i find that with a lot of lynch stuff not all of it don't get me wrong but i think donnie darko does it beautifully and i i with, you know, without getting into it, I, I'm hesitant to see a sequel to it because I think it stands out mm-hmm. just perfectly on its own, and I think anything yeah, I think coming so. along might devalue it. I, I don't. I, I don't. Didn't, I, I didn't think there was a sequel coming, and when you read out that there was going to be one, uh, my heart did sink a little bit. Yeah, I'm very, very skeptical about because, like you, I think it's a perfect little self-contained story, and even as I was, I haven't watched it, but like reading the synopsis for S. Darko and stuff, I'm like oh, this just feels horribly unnecessary and just retreading things, which makes them less special and less important and kind of ah, just, I don't like it. <laughs> it. It leaves a bad taste, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't put my finger on what it is about this that I enjoy in terms of 
Because I'm like Jamie, I don't really like, you know, just weird trippiness or ambiguous visuals or stuff that's there for the sake of it. But there are, there are moments that work, and I think it's partly nostalgia, uh, having grown up in the 80s, and partly that sort of weird, the way it's filmed, the sort of grain, I guess, that it has on, and, and uh, I don't know, there's something about it that just flows over you nicely. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie, you were saying. I think there's like two things which I can think of off the top of my head, which which is why it works. First of all, the characters are interesting and engaging mm-hmm. and you know, entertaining. So I'm carried through the narrative thanks to the characters, which I can get into. And second, I think the film it's you know, it is confusing, but I think it's it treads the fine line between being what the actual hell to being okay. I think I've got it, maybe just need yeah. um to think about it a bit more and i think that second camp it, you know it's it yeah it's, it leans more into that camp and i prefer that camp because it, it you know it means i'm not completely lost it means i'm more willing to just you know figure out for myself why um you know what does the film mean and it leaves me thinking about the film months after after watching it and it it, it just helps also with the rewatchability as i'm always willing to rewatch it to try and see if i can understand it that like 1% more I, yeah, yeah. St- stuff like that i think it's just it, it gives the the it, it gives the impression that you can figure it out if you put in the time and effort it's not like um you know well from what i can tell from david lynch films where you just have no clue what's happening at all well yes and no i mean like i said that's why i I like the first couple of seasons of Twin Peaks because there are moments that are similar to this where it's like they're trippy, but they have a an internal logic, I guess, to them. Um, and yet, like I said, I don't like a lot of Lynch films and that last season of Twin Peaks because a lot of it was just like, here's some random shit that's happening. Why? We don't care. And it's like, well, yeah, my friend watched, uh, <laughs> give me one of my something. Friends watched uh... One of my friends watched Mulholland Drive um, recently, and he's um, he, you know, I've you know, friends friends with him for a, a decent while, so he knows what my film tastes are like. And after watching mm-hmm. it, he just um, turned to me and was like, "Don't watch this film; it is not for you." Yeah, <laughs> I've, been, I've kind of been saying that to Mike. It's my favorite film of all time, and yeah, I don't think Mike's going to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, but you thought I was going to prefer the director's cut of this movie, and I just I honestly did. I was, when you got back to me and said, "I've watched the director's cut," and Frankly, I prefer the theatrical cut. I almost dropped my phone. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm an enigma. <laughs> you can't figure me out. <laughs> this film is just an enigma on its own. It is. Yeah. And what worries me about the fact that Kelly's possibly coming back to do a sequel is you do see it from time to time with the directors that have made a good film, gone on to things that haven't been as well received. And invariably, mm-hmm. sometimes they come back to their first glory in the hope they're going to recapture it. And that's yeah. what worries me about this, because let's be honest, the movies that Kelly's made since this haven't been that well received. What works about this film is... I'd say it's only really the ending, which most people are confused about, like, you know, what does it all mean and whatnot. It's not like the average scene is a trippy, weird, what the hell ha- just happened scene. It, it's, you know, it makes sense. There's a, you know, a regular story about, um, you know, a, a kid in, in, in school, coming of age. You've got, you've got the coming of age stuff, which is just normal, normality, peace, tranquility, mm. just Something you can actually grasp and relate to, which gets you engaged with the film. It's only like at the end when it becomes more more weird, but you know it's not as big of a deal because you're not you know your brain isn't already frazzled. Yeah. I think the biggest the biggest issue that I could identify is the one that they actually point out when on the director's cut and in the behind the scenes and stuff, which is 
if you don't know, the, the majority of the film is supposed to take place in this tangent universe, which is created when the jet engine first lands. So this is like not the prime universe. That's on pause while we're living in the tangent universe, but that can't exist for longer than a few weeks. So that's the 28 days. And Donnie has to kind of correct everything by putting it back to the prime universe. But the film gives absolutely no indication visually in dialogue or anything that you've entered this tangent universe. It just carries on as it would normally. And it still like, well, kind of works. Yeah. I mean, it works because that's when this, you start seeing trippy stuff and you understand that you're going back to a set point. Uh, on that day, you know, when, when the jet engine fell and you, there's a lot of talk of this artifact being the the key thing that's, you know, between universes, that's the error or the issue yeah. or whatever. And I, I mean, I get it, but like I said, I, it wouldn't have killed them to have at least some indication that you are now entering a parallel universe or an alternate timeline. But I think <laughs> at that point, a lot of people would tune out. Hmm. Maybe, mm. maybe, yeah. I mean, as I it stands, it's, it's an intriguing piece of cinema that, as Jamie said earlier, it, it, it makes you think, it makes you want to get more involved. I think yeah. if you start throwing alternate universes at people immediately, it's it's going to, you know, turn a well, lot of I mean, people you, off. The, the film is dealing with time travel, though, and it's making no secret of that. So it's dealing with that from, like minute 40 or whatever when he starts asking Noah Wiley about it so it's not like people aren't aware of that and the entire thing the crux of the whole thing is going back and rewriting stuff to a different timeline because we know things happen differently there than what actually occurred so but what I'm saying is like, you've, got, you know, you've got people bringing their own experience into it and trying to figure it out for themselves if you put in what is official kind of the official explanation I think it would leave a lot of people cold because it Maybe. doesn't allow them to give their own interpretation and not feel as close oh. to it. I think yeah, as I it think, stands, think, they, they kind of feel this fun. kind of kindreds with it. Hmm. Yeah, Sorry, I think Jamie, it's more fun to like, dig, to like dig for your own answers than have it explained to you. Yeah. See, I, I just would have preferred, like, uh, you don't have to make it super explicit or anything, but, like, for example, there's that really cool directorial moment when he has the school bus at a complete 90-degree angle, and it's, like, unsettling. And I was like, if that had been the kind of key point where it's not pointed out to you, but you could surmise if you wanted to, that's where the universe, you know, resets or whatever. But it's not. It's just that just exists as a weird bit of directorial flourish. And I'm like, you could have done something like that, you know? It wouldn't have been too difficult, surely, you know? But again, that's probably me and my kind of handholdiness, I guess, coming through. And it doesn't bother me that it's not there. It's just, like you said, there's no real indication that that's what Kelly was aiming for. And I think that's kind of a, uh, if I'm going to argue the point, that's kind of a flaw in his writing that, well, how are you supposed to figure that out? <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> I think I think uh, the, the production as it stands on its own, if... You're gonna look. You're either gonna watch this movie and be caught up in it, be extremely interested in it, or you're gonna watch it and just. And I can imagine my parents doing this, what sitting down watching it, cutting away and thinking, "What, what the hell was that?" And the people yeah. that are caught up in it, they are gonna kind of explore and get into it a little more. And I and I like that it seems to kind of encourage and, yeah, you know, I, 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 it's not one of these. Not going down that path where you said, "Oh, I, I like movies that make you think." You know, we all want like want brainless entertainment from time to time. But I do like the fact that if you are interested in it, you can look it up yourself. You can look straight up explanation yeah. or try and figure it out for yourself. Watch the. I, I love that puzzle box aspect of it. It's not a movie which just makes me think. It's mostly just a movie which sticks with me. Like that's that's what I always like look for. Just something which you know, can play in my mind for a while. Like usually it is you know. To make me think but sometimes a movie can just be 
you know, really entertaining, really simple with its messages or anything, and just yeah. you know, straight to the point. But if it just if I can relate to it, it, it just sticks with me for a good while afterwards. And that, that's those are like what I look for in, in movies. And Donnie Darko is a prime example of one of those movies because it just it sticks in my mind for ages after every rewatch, and I just love it. That was going to be my point. It's not so much that it makes you think; it's more that it's a film that you want to dive deeper into because you care, because the mm. direction and the acting and stuff makes you it engrosses you in the world enough to think, "Oh, I want to know more about this. Is there a mythos yeah. behind it? Is there are there explanations? Are there interpretations? I want to know more, as opposed to just being, you know, I'll turn it off and forget about it tomorrow." And I mean, there are films that do that that are bad. I mean, I mentioned to you when we did our Prometheus review that it led me down a a terrible path of looking up every bit of alien information on the alien wiki because as much as the film's terrible the world that it inhabits is an interesting one where i'm like well i'm intrigued as to what exists in this world at least i don't want to just turn it off and forget about it if i had time i would have rewatched the um the making of documentary on on the blu-ray before the um the the podcast so i could get my own facts but i, I just didn't have yeah. that time I was saying to DK, like I, I did a little bit of research on the internet, but I do want to definitely go in and watch the behind the scenes features and especially the commentaries. And in particular, the director's cut has a commentary with uh, Kelly and Kevin Smith, which I'm like, that's got to be interesting, surely. <laughs> yeah. but you see, uh, the, the main making of documentary, uh, the title's bad. It says the philosophy of Donnie Darker. It's not about the philosophy at all. It's a making of documentary. Like, that's a bad mm. title, but. Aside from that, I think it's a you know, really strong making of documentary, really interesting. On um, the director's cut disc, there's a two-part documentary just called They Made Me Do It as well, which is a completely separate like making of, but again, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it. So I've, I've seen the it. philosophy. <laughs> okay. hmm. right, going on from uh, from directing now, the FX. Anybody got anything to say about the FX for the most part? I only really have one note, and it was just what I told you, which is that it looks like very basic previs from the abyss when he starts seeing the time yeah, tracks or whatever you call them. I'd say the effects are like the one part of the movie which have slightly dated, but like only like, like I know it was 2001. Obviously, visual effects were still in there, still like you know in their early days, and you know they aren't in it that much, so it doesn't take me out of the film. And you know, sometimes there are you know really good effects, like you know the the school, the flooded school, for instance. That one looks um you're really good. Mm. Uh, it's just like you know the the wormhole, for instance, can be a bit off, but it's it's not a big issue for me at, at all. It doesn't bother me because it, it to me it it basically adds to the trippy dreamlike quality because it doesn't mm. look real and that kind of in a way that makes it more abstract in that way and yeah. uh, so I'm fine with it but I mean even not necessarily just that scene but the scenes like I said I absolutely adore the scenes when he's like punching the the mirror and it becomes like water rippling and then it that that oh, yeah. is reflected in Frank's That's eye and that becomes the portal and like that is not easy to do with special no. effects in two thousand and one and yet it looks incredible. Yeah, you know, I think the only like thing the that, does, that does kind of let you down in, in in you know in my opinion is what you've said the the kind of future blobs they look a little dated now yeah. mm. uh, and and the bit where he gets enveloped in Gretchen's and his eyes. Open wide, it's like a sound yeah, video like... from the early 90s kind of thing. Pitch meeting didn't need to, um, didn't need to edit their thumbnail, they could have just photoshopped that thing. I hate, I hate the pitch meeting thumbnails with a passion <laughs> with the big eyes. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. forgot about that until you've just mentioned it just now, DK. And yep, that is completely that is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. We're going to warp level of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <movie>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are my two things that come to my mind: Guys of Galaxy Two and Pitch Meeting. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean other than that, I think I mean the visual effects aren't the point of the film, really, are they? So, nah. Yeah. 
And, you know, it never reaches Scorpion King level, so... No, very few things do, thankfully. <laughs> uh, yeah, on a sound design and the soundtrack, any notes with regards to this? Oh, oh yes. I love the music. Mm. Yep, it's the just... 80s music is just amazing. Such well-picked tracks for every moment as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, what's, the, what's the first song called, you know, when he's on the bike? What's that song called? Yeah, uh, That's Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men. Hmm. I, I know, just, just a great no, song which works like whenever like you know whenever i rewatch the film it's like when that, when that music comes on, I, I get strangely hyped for the rest of the movie well weirdly enough in the director's cut they don't use that track no uh, yeah uh the track that they they replace it with uh never tear us apart by in excess and uh my song by the way <laughs> Mike found a uh, a quote. Where did you find this, actually, Mike? I have no idea. I know I sent it to you, but I can't remember where yeah. I found it. Actually, it might have been quote. on the Donnie Darko wiki or something, but it definitely I found it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically uh, with regards to this this soundtrack change replacing Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunny Men to uh, Never Tear Us Apart by NXS. It says the new soundtrack received considerable criticism with several commentators bemoaning the decision to replace Killing Moon with Never Tear Us Apart for the opening sequence. Wampler felt the song didn't fit nearly as well, while Sims described it as being horribly mismatched. Ash Cantrell of Film School Rejects echoed this sentiment and argued that the soundtrack got turned into a kind of pile of crap. In an interview with British music magazine NME, Ian McCulloch, the lead singer of Echo and the Bunny Men, branded Kelly a knobhead for making the change. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Such a peculiarly British insult anyway, just calling anybody yeah. a knobhead. Knobhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I describe that for Adrian, because normally she asks what these uh, British philosophers <laughs> are. Yeah, don't don't Google it though, Adrian. Whatever. You do. Yeah, I will say I disagree with the uh, complaints on that. Having now watched the director's cut, because I do think uh, "Never Tear Us Apart" still works. It, I don't think it works as well, but it's such a good song and it still powers you through. So to me, well, it's just an interesting alternative. It, it doesn't make it worse. I'll be honest. When, I, as I told you earlier, I, I put the Blu-ray on earlier today, and mm. you could tell that I put the 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 director's cut on accidentally disc rather than theatrical because in excess started playing, but it still <laughs> kind of works. It does, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's got that same weird quality of, um, I guess, hauntingness and and that weird trippy, you know, flowing nature to yeah. it, which perfectly plays over the sleepwalking and then everybody introduced in slow-mo. And it's just a bloody good song as well, which helps, you yeah. know. Well, I mean, I mean it's, it's all than this. I mean, that Tears for Fear song as they're doing that intro, you know, going down the corridor mm -hmm. in the school at the start. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Jamie mentioned that, I think, earlier, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bang a song. But even then, even outside of the like the pre-existing songs, just the general, like the music, like the, the more ambient um, music mm. is just really strong. I think the, the one which stuck out to me was, I think it was using the credits as well. And it was the, um, the, the cinema scene, the music used there. Yeah. Like the yeah. operatic, would, yeah, yeah opera, operatic music. It, it just feels, it's ominous, but beautiful at the same time. I like yeah. the, the, the little refrain. Uh, that uh, Michael Andrews uses whenever whenever it's cutting back to uh, Donnie in the bathroom speaking with Frank, 
And it's used, mm. I think, again in the scene where he's calling uh, Cunningham the Antichrist. Mm. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I noticed a lot of that thing, but the most the most powerful use for me was the very first appearance of Frank, where I noticed that there's no music, but there's such like the sound design is so ethereal and weird that it oh, really yeah. adds to the the kind of nightmare dream like quality and. Maybe that's the key that we're in a different universe. I don't know, but the way that the sound plays perfectly is like what I'm a little disturbed, but not in like a scary way. It's just a bit unsettling, and it's and yet weirdly beautiful with it as well. So yeah, I like all that. Yeah, and of course you can't let the soundtrack go without bringing up uh, Mad World. <sighs> Do we have to? I mean, I would have, I would have been fine with it, but it was played to fucking death know, in this country because it, it, it was just like <sighs> Christmas number. It was one. Christmas number one. <laughs> Yeah, it, it killed it for me. I sorry, <laughs> just nope. <laughs> I loved it in the soundtrack for this, but after three weeks of seeing him singing while he's turning around on bloody baubles, I was just no. <laughs> well, yep. luckily, I, I hadn't um suffered from mad world fatigue, so I, I love the use of it. It's great in the movie, but I'm just so sick of that song. It's the same way that, like, everything I do, I do it for you is a great song if you're watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but after 17 weeks of hearing it in the chat, Yeah, you do too. I, I want to go out I with, watched, you know, I Prince to see Brian Adam with a bat. And um, my mum has, like, PTSD when that song came up because she was just like, Believe every me, I can relate. day at, my old, at the factory I used to work at had, the, had that freaking song. Yeah, number one for, like, months on end. It was ridiculous. And anyway. meanwhile, I'm over here, like, uh, I recognise that song on like some Disney logo or something. <laughs> anyway, yeah, great. Once again, that time to see what our own personal little moments of genius were. I'm going to go around, ask your favourite character, moment, scene, line from the movie, and then before we get to our conclusions, we'll have a look and see what the audience had to say. So first off, we'll go for favourite character. And on this, we'll start with you, Jamie, uh, then Mike, and then myself. So, who's your favourite character, and why? Oh, it's a tough. It's a tough one. It's a toss-up between Eddie and Karen. Like Eddie, because you know he's he, you know, he's he's caring for a start, but also he gets them um, you know loads of laughs out of me. And um, Karen, because she's the most legendary teacher I've ever I've ever seen in anything. Fantastic. Uh, I did like that. I, I noticed mentioned. I did like the scene at the start where Eddie uses the leaf blower on Elizabeth, oh, as yeah. she's, like, trying to talk to him. It's like Eddie is exactly like my dad, so I, I, I see <laughs> yeah, a lot of my dad. With with, uh, with regards to Elizabeth, apparently uh, Kelly was hesitant with her at the first, but he had it pointed out uh, that she was in. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you guys have seen it. Cecil B. Demented. I haven't, I haven't heard. Uh, and apparently Kelly really liked the way that she drank urine in that movie. Oh. <laughs> Make of that what you will. Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay, then, then let's move on. <laughs> so what's your, what's your favourite character, Mike? I, I could have picked any number of characters. They're all There's a lot of great ones, as I'm saying. And uh, But yet, for me, it comes down to Donnie, because, like I said, for me, he's very relatable. I think he is anyway for anybody who's been through that, like, angsty period. But you couple it with having sort of mental issues and... Uh, not knowing his place in the world, but yet being special, I guess, in his literal case. So to me, I think that's... It. Plus, he's the heart and mind of the film. So for me, hmm. if that performance doesn't work, if that character isn't, you know, likeable, 
the film collapses in its own way and thankfully Hall does a great job and the character is really compelling and you just want to watch him throughout or i do so i went with donnie yeah i, I probably yeah. should clarify i do think donnie is the objective best character just when i was asking my favorite i was just going for the the, the more yeah. humorous characters the more entertaining ones oh and i could fully yeah, have yeah. picked definitely karen at least as you said because for such a small little role the impact is is huge and yeah. if we're not necessarily going favorite in terms of likability then as i said kitty is a fantastically played and well-drawn <laughs> character, but likable she ain't, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've I've got to go with Donnie myself. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but that's exactly how I was at school. Well, you know, minus yeah. the powers of talking to a human bunny, but yeah. <laughs> I wasn't that cool. <laughs> I was talking to plushy bunnies. Still if anything, I was, I was probably Samantha Darko. I was probably just sparkle motioning on the stage somewhere. <laughs> oh, see, now if there's anybody out there that has footage of this, contact <laughs> us. I want to see this shit. It's, it's out there. I did do modern dance for a while when I was in high school, unfortunately. Oh, man. <laughs> I'd say I'm probably most, I'm probably most like Elizabeth. <laughs> well, you dated Frank. That's it. <laughs> Richard Kelly likes the way you drink urine. <laughs> I've never done that, don't worry. That's the episode title right there. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Kelly likes the way you drink urine. Oh, God. Uh, well, we'll stick with you, Jamie. What's your favourite scene in this? Right. Um, <clears throat> just need to get a drink first. First of all, Papa, Papa Smurf didn't create Smurfette. Gargamel did. She was sent in as Gargamel's evil spy with the intention of destroying the Smurf village. But the overwhelming goodness of the Smurf way of life transformed her. And that's for the whole gangbang scenario. It just couldn't happen. Smurfs are asexual. They didn't have reproductive organs, uh, reproductive organs under those little white pants. That's, that's what's so illogical, you know, about being a Smurf. What's the point of living if you don't have a dick? That's your favourite scene then, yeah? Well, okay, that's the most humorous scene. I'd say my actual favourite scene is probably... Um, Probably just the Mad World sequence at the the Mad World sequence at the very end, but I just think it's funny to say the Smurf scene. Yeah, I'm surprised no one has brought that up until now. I, I mentioned it in the when we were talking about the humor. I said it was absolutely gold, but I thought I had to quote the whole thing. Why not? Well, apparently Kelly was on the phone to the company that that owned the rights to the Smurfs because he wanted a Smurf to use in that scene for having him shooting at him, <laughs> and that's when. They actually confirmed they could use that dialogue in the movie for the Smurfs because it's pretty accurate. <laughs> what, including vanity being gay? I, yeah. I can't get into. I, I, I have no idea about that. Uh, what's, what's your favourite scene, Mike? My favourite scene is well, again, I could pick any number of them because it's a it's a beautiful movie and I enjoyed watching the entirety of it. But the scene that hit the most for me was the reveal of Frank. Um, because like I said, even though it doesn't explain everything, I liked that explanation of like, once you've seen Gretchen killed, then, you know, you just see a footstep out of the car and it pans up and it's Frank in the bunny suit. And then following that, you see Donnie hold the gun and shoot him in the eye. And so that entire sequence to me was a great moment of recognition and like, whoa, I totally know what's happening here whilst also understanding nothing. So, <laughs> so I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a good one. When I first watched it, I couldn't believe Gretchen, you know, he'd, he'd run over Gretchen himself. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the cinema scene where they're speaking. As uh, mm. Sunday mentioned earlier, I forget who it was. The music in that just elevated that. Oh, yeah. I thought that was a fantastic yeah. scene. It's a good scene, like I said, the fact that they used that as the promo and, and the first thing in the trailer, look at the movie screen, there's something I want to show you, is, is very mm. evocative right there. So, yeah. Actually, 
Can I change my favorite scene? Can I say um, all the scenes? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. You can, but you've already picked one now. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying, like, all, like your picks are are totally valid. Like, you, know, I, you, know, you Absolutely. could pick any scene from this movie, and it would, it would, I would understand. Yeah. yeah, throw a dart at a scene and that's it. I like that. You know, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> what about your favorite line, Jamie? Do you have you have got one? As for like a single line, uh, probably, probably, um, you know, um, uh, Kitty saying like, "I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise cart into my anus." <laughs> nice. <laughs> what about you, Mike? I, I hate doing this, but I have, I have I have to give you a top three again. But never oh, mind, I have a number one. Goodness. But my, my number three for comedy value is definitely... Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> it's just the way she's so earnest with it, and yet it's a friggin' like, eight-year-old's dance class. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hilarious, the juxtaposition of, like, I'm so incredulous and it's so stupid sparkle motion. Anyway, uh, my number two was going to be... And what if you could go back in time and take all those hours of pain and darkness and replace them with something better? It was like, that's a cheat because that's just basically the movie in, in mini form. So I was like, I don't want to pick that as my number one. My number one was something I alluded to earlier, which is Donnie uh, in the end when he says... I hope that when the world comes to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. And that hits on the crux of my personal understanding of like him coming to terms with death and that it doesn't have to be this big empty void of, of oblivion. It's there's beauty in it and there's you know you can re you can now relax, I guess. <laughs> so yeah. Actually I've got cool. another line I want to mention real quick. Like I I, I forgot to mention it because I'm too busy talking about meme lines, but um uh I <laughs> I love the, um, you know, uh... Why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit? Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? I, I can read into that in various ways. Like, it's sort of, you know, Donnie mm -hmm. pretending to be like everyone else, pretending to be like, you know, a quote-unquote normal human, even though he's, he's different. It's like, it's sort of like he's wearing a man suit when really he's, you know, something completely different. That's, that's what I read into it, at least. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. We're looking at that. It's yeah. a good interpretation. I like that. Uh, I've I've got about I've got a couple. Uh, I do like the the little exchange at the start. They're weird. Sorry. Yeah, that was a compliment. Uh, but I'm going to go with that. Mike's already mentioned it. What if you could go back in time, take all those hours of pain and darkness, and replace them with something better? And it is pretty much the movie. But I do love it. It is great. But then again, you've got to couple that as well with because even that the movie doesn't let sit. I really love the moment when they're explaining they're kind of like we're going to give good images to babies and stuff, and Noah Wiley just said. And did you stop and think that maybe infants need darkness? That maybe darkness is part of their natural development? No. <laughs> so. Uh... As I said, before we go to the conclusions, we'll have a look at the uh, the audience participations. But uh, before I hand you over to Mike, I just want to say that if you enjoyed the show today and want to comment, you want to disagree, or you think there's something we didn't give enough attention to or missed, please don't hesitate to get in touch, either on our social media pages, links in the description, 
or leave a comment on our YouTube page. And for everyone that has submitted a response in time for today's recording, thank you. But uh, even then, it's not too late. We're always open to hearing your thoughts on the shows. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, here's Mike with the audience response. Over to you, Mike. Any good ones? Uh, yeah, we have a few. I mean, uh, people have, have strong thoughts about this film one way or the other. So um, we have <clears throat> DK's friend and friend of the show, Nick Herring, uh, who said it's a dark, quirky and original feature debut from writer-director Richard Kelly. Donnie Darko is a real mix of genres and tones. It's very open to interpretation, causing much discussion, which I love in a film. I've never actually seen the director's cut, as I understand it's a bit more explicit in explaining events and in a way that didn't gel with my feelings, which is fine. A great cast on top form and filled with memorable moments. I think anyone should give it a try, whether they end up enjoying it or not. As far as I'm aware, it was all downhill from here for Kelly. I've never tried the much maligned and unnecessary sequel. It stands on its own. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think any of us are keen to jump into S Darko <laughs> anytime soon. But I mean, yeah. I, every month I like watching, um, you know, because I do like monthly YouTube film rankings. You know, I like having variety, so I do try to pick a pick a bad movie to watch. Anyway, so I'll be watching S Darko <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, there's a conversation here. That I'm not sure where. I think it was DK that sent me to it. And it may just be between friends in a text exchange. But uh, uh, someone called Ian Skeskinne. Oh, uh, yeah, I, no, I just I, I put I put up a post on uh, Facebook saying, you know, last chance saloon. Anybody have any thoughts yeah. on Donnie Darko? Cool. Uh, so Ian says it's proper dark. On a more serious note, it's one of those movies I knew absolutely nothing about going into, and just remember thinking it's, it's like being in a crazy dream. And upon ending, I was both confused and pleasantly pleased that I just watched a good effing movie. LOL. Uh, L Wilkie says I really like it, as I like weird films like this anyway. I don't like the end though. Yeah, I know it has to end that way. <clears throat> and Aaron Bossig says excellent film. One that makes you rethink it several times before you fully form your opinion of it. Stellar cast and direction. And I have a couple more amusing ones here. Um, Nat on Letterboxd gave the film five stars. And I love this review. It just says, me, this is a masterpiece. Also me. Has to Google, what is Donnie Darko about? <laughs> I had that review right up right now because I was going to read it out uh, myself if you hadn't already. <laughs> I love that. And finally, the uh, comprehensive review of the week goes to L. Wilkie, who responds, great film. Thanks for that deep and powerful insight, L. <laughs> I like, I like oh, Shannon's sorry. review on that box, as it just says, sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Yes, I love it. <laughs> sorry, I, I should say, actually, I almost forgot the most important one, which is Sandy on our Discord did actually give me her usual lengthy uh, review as well. That's uh, Tachyon underscore 15 or Sandra Evanson. You'll have heard around the podcasts. She says, OK, my interaction, the first time I watched this movie, it was very unsettling and scary, but I couldn't take my eyes away. The second time I watched it, it became this story told from the perspective of an unreliable narrator that stayed in my mind for days. Each subsequent rewatch, it's like re-entering a tangent universe and going in for another loop. Having seen it several times now, I'm all in on the philosophy of time travel. I love its contemplations of free will versus predestination and how it draws from symbolism found in literature. At times, the direction and dialogue is awkward and unreal, but at other times, the conversation and acting are so natural, the switch can be jarring. The casting is mostly very fun, but the silly bullies didn't quite pull it off. All of this is easily forgiven. As a causal sequence of events unfolds, the late 80s brooding music, along with the camera work and editing, make Donnie Darko a whole mood. But what really puts the Roberta in my sparrow is the science fiction Richard Kelly posits and the philosophy his dialogue contemplates. Oops, it's longish again. It's just so complicated and special. 
Thanks, Sandy, for that. <laughs> and that's it this time, I promise. <laughs> awesome. I've, I've got to say, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about this movie with spoilers. Because I wrote a letterbox review earlier today, but I, I don't like having spoilers in my reviews. So it was a bit of a, you know, cut and paste review, to, to mm. put it simply, trying to not spoil the film for, for anyone. So it's nice to just express all of my opinions with a spoiler environment. Yeah. <laughs> nice is one. It cool, by the way, if I read out Will's uh, conclusion first, because I do have it. Yeah, I'm going to oh, say yeah. thank you to uh, everyone that gave us a response. Uh, now we know what you think. It's time to see what we thought of it. Uh, so, yeah, we'll start with uh, with Will's, and uh, then we'll go to Jamie, yourself, Mike, and then and then me. So uh, go for it. Awesome. Uh, so Will just said, what a film. So many things are going on, but with a driving plot, excellent performances and a killer soundtrack, it hits so hard. It's weird, but hits close to home with its mental health discussions that were spliced well across the film. Donnie is like Matt Damon's character in Goodwill Hunting, dialed up to 11, and he gives it four stars out of five. Okay. So the star. And what about you, Jamie? What's your, what's your thoughts and score? Right, I don't have a written um, a written conclusion because I do have a lot. Yeah, to say you do. It's on Letterboxd. <laughs> well, yeah, I do, but that's that's a long review that we've I've trudged over a lot of it. I'm gonna just wing. I'm gonna wing the conclusion, but uh, I'll just I'll just go. With it. So, Donnie Darko is one of my top five favorite films of all time. I love basically everything about it. It's it's weird, but in the best way. It keeps me. It it captivates me. Um, it makes me engage with the characters. The characters are all really strong. The, the, the pace is sharp. The writing's sharp. Everything's just really engaging about it, and it it lingers in my mind and leaves me, you know, thinking about the movie for a while afterwards. And that's what you know my favorite movies do. But you know, like a lot of my other favorite movies, it just has the elements I like. Like it has the humor. It has the interesting characters. It it, it has just deeper parts to it, and I love it. But but I think the real reason I love the movie is because. I'd argue that this was the movie which got me into analyzing movies. Like it was this film where I just wanted to break it down. I wanted to, you know, uncover it, and it like I wanted to do some kind of analysis on this movie. I still haven't done that analysis, by the way, but I, I wanted to, and it's led to me doing analysis on other movies, and that's what my YouTube channel focuses on now because that's what I've realized I enjoy doing the most. So yeah, I have Donnie Darko to thank for my current stuff on YouTube. But uh, yeah, that's the real reason I've. I, I love it so much. It's uh, inspired me creatively. So for that and just everything I love about it, it's a five stars for me, easily. Oh, nice. All right, uh, go for it, next... <laughs> Okay, sorry about this being long-winded and written, but that's how I do it, as I've said before. But uh, I just said, a film that's just beautifully directed, brilliantly crafted, and a work of obvious care and affection. It's weird, but whilst I don't fully understand it, I do get it. What I mean is that the emotions, the themes, and the tone all come through and really affect me. I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but diving into this movie for the first time in two decades, I found it a far more emotional and intense experience that I now really want to know more about. What I pick up is a film that truly captures the human experience of growing up and developing your sense of self. The film seems to emphasize the strengths and weird beauty of nihilism. There's a uh, now classic episode of Doctor Who where a character says that sad is happy for deep people. That's the vibes this film gives off. And yet it's oddly life affirming as well. For me, it says that regardless of any thoughts of religion, philosophy or the meaning of life, the most important thing is how we've lived, the choices we've made and how we affect others. Donnie ultimately dies for love. It literally tears him apart. He'll never get to affect Gretchen again, but this final act of love literally saves her life. 
heavy themes. But it must be said that this is only my interpretation and it is definitely one of those films where the ambiguity is a strength and it can certainly mean different things to different people. There's a lot here and I could analyze it for far longer than the length of a podcast. Ultimately, I still slightly prefer a film with a clearer narrative, but this is still a truly great piece where at the very least you can enjoy the performances, look, music, feel, tone, and frankly, the experience. Pure cinema. And I gave it 4.5 out of 5. Mm. Fair enough. Uh, right, I uh, I love Danny Darko from the first viewing, and having watched it only a few hours prior to this recording, I love it just as much now. Richard Kelly created a beautiful, ambiguous puzzle box that pulls you in and doesn't let go until the credits are rolling. The writing and direction convey a sense of futility in the lives of the youth of Middlesex and the apathy of the parents, while crafting a spectacular sci-fi slash horror thriller with a sense of impending doom around it. The performances sell you wholeheartedly on the premise, and no, it's not easy. No, it doesn't spoon-feed you. And while I don't profess to completely understand every aspect of it, even now, I can't help but love it. It's a mood, but more importantly to me, it's a work of art. And I give it five. Uh -huh. so, I now have the average then, because I figured you were going to do that. <laughs> so, uh, go yeah, on then, mate. Uh, really, the Mr. Cult Classic is giving it five stars. <laughs> yeah, I kind of got it. But yeah, so uh, we are including Will's score, because he was here at the start and would have been on the episode. So taking all four of those scores, dividing it by four, uh, gives Donnie Darko the quite whopping score of 4.625 out of five, Jeez. which has got to be one of our highest, especially for a four-person yeah, review, four got to be one of our highest rated. Well, I'm surprised, man, because I know this film isn't for everyone. Like, there are some people who just um, don't get it. But it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised that, we, you know, generally we all um, really liked it. Yeah, I'd, I would say so. I mean, Will was the least on board, and he still gave it four stars. So. <laughs> I mean, for bad. me, if, if I give a film of five stars, I... I'm I'm satisfied with any I'm satisfied with any rating like up to four stars I'd say. Mm, absolutely agreed. Yeah. And yeah, no nobody really hated it. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Back to you. Yeah, e even in the audience participation, everyone seems to have a generally favourable opinion. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was just as like a random point I wanted to mention, just like you know, not to do with the film, but just with how I watched it. Um, this viewing was absolutely my favorite viewing so far. Like I loved my initial yeah. viewing, but my rewatch last year, um, I rewatched it in October and you know, October is a winter month. And so the, the sun is at awkward angles. Let's just say it was peeking through my curtains. And for a film with a lot of dark scenes, it, it was the definition of distracting. So I'm going to just, so I was kind of wondering like, you know, after my previous, after my viewing last year, like, Oh, do I really love the film that much? But after my rewatch today, yeah, that last film was just a dud viewing. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think I made the mistake of watching the director's cut directly afterwards because it is so similar that it was very, it was a slog to get through everything I'd literally seen a day before. Yeah, that's so I kind why of wish I'd given it a bit of space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> cool. So that's it from, uh, from us this episode. All that's left to thank is uh, my fellow time travelers. So thanks as usual to Mike for being a mensch. Anything in particular you want to draw the listeners' attention to while we're here? No, not at all. They can always find all of our links and information in the descriptions. Uh, do uh, If you have enjoyed this and you'd like to keep us you know, ticking over financially, you can always uh, tip us or buy us a coffee with our coffee link that's in the description. And if you'd like to, you can still, for a while at least, submit a film that you would like us to review, thanks to our 200 subscribers uh, special that we did. We've only had a few 
couple in so far. So again, if you want to submit that by any of our social media links, by the comments on YouTube, please do. And uh, we'll either put it in a draw or if something gets an overwhelming uh, positive response and a lot of people pick it, then we'll just go with that. Yeah, and we definitely <laughs> want a different suggestion to the one Will's given us. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, how about you, Jimmy? Thank you to you for joining us, by the way. And uh, anywhere everybody can reach you? Uh, uh, my um, my YouTube channel, uh, J Productions, because this is specifically um, film stuff. So, um, you know, um, YouTube channel J Productions is where I do yeah, film Great content. Great channel, like, by the way. <laughs> My my like my monthly film rankings, for instance, uh, Donnie Darker will be on my May ranking because I watched it in May, and you know, yeah. alongside certain other films um, which don't go alongside Donnie Darko at all. They're, got some variety in there. Like one minute I will be talking about Robin Hood Men in Tights, then I'll be talking about Donnie Darko. <laughs> well, we'll put the uh, the links in the description, and uh, you know, so if anybody, please, folks out there in the normal world, please check them out. You won't regret it. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, tell your friends. If you'd like to appear on the show as a guest, drop us a line. Or if you've got any suggestions for the movies, as Mike said, uh, you'd like to see covered, we're always listening. Uh, our next cult episode, we'll see Mike, myself, and guests desperately trying to find out which one of us has the touch. And if you haven't guessed it at that, here's Mike with another little audio clue. <laughs> Fantastic. Ah. Uh, as for which one, you'll just have to tune in next week and find out. As for our regular episodes, do you want to tell them what we'll be uh, covering in upcoming uh, episodes? Uh, yeah, I have a list for the next sort of a few weeks that are coming up. So we have got obviously that cult episode. Uh, we're going to be going over to our Star Trek uh, podcast and actually beginning the full series of that uh, coming up on May, sorry, June the 11th. Uh, that's going to be starting Klingon episodes if you're into all things Trek. As for things here, <clears throat> following that cult episode, uh, there's going to be a very special episode with myself, Toby, and anybody else who wants to join, uh, where we review Justice League, The Flashpoint Paradox, and The Flash episode, Flashpoint. Obviously, that's to tie in with a particular film release that might be happening. Uh, we've also got, let's see, uh, myself, Stephen, and DK are going to be reviewing Raiders of the Lost Ark to tie in with another release on uh, June the 29th. So, uh, until then... Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time. And uh, instead of the usual sign-off, ask yourself this. Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? <laughs> I'll be back. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind the scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.